My guest, most importantly, uh, recognizes that rhythm is love and that much of his legacy has reverberated out into the universe, pushing back against the despair and the gloom that we all feel on a day-to-day basis. And I think, as the great Art Blakey said, my job is to wash away the dust of everyday life for the people that come in uh, to support my music. And I think my guest has been on that path as well. Larry Zach, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, I didn't realize I was going to be on a show, but uh, thank you for that, and uh, good to hear your voice. Where are you in Arizona? Sweating it out in Tucson, baby. Still hot. Here. Okay. You know, I, Larry, I want. I you know, I just wanted to ask you if you could talk to the audience about how uh, music has been a, a healing force for you in your life, and and how um, it has been maybe salvation during some of the harder periods of your life? Well, it's always been something that I gravitate to quite naturally from a young age, and uh, it's always been there for me. It's, uh, you know, my drive and my love of music and, and what I bring to it has always been something that I could count on. Um you know, irregardless of people, places, and settings, it's just something that's ingrained in me. And you mentioned, like, Art Blakey and, uh, you know, just a wonderful musician. And uh, that kind of spirit around me has always been the thing that kept me going from, particularly from high school. And uh, Can you talk about, in, like, in high school... Um uh, were you, I mean, I'm not sure if you grew up in Detroit proper or not, but um, like Joe Podorsik, were there were there teachers or were there actually elders that you uh, that that mentored you in some way early on? Yeah, well, my my oldest brother, half brother, but uh, uh, I have two half brothers, and my oldest uh, brother was my first mentor and. long ago but he you know he was very active in uh, the studios with Motown and what was uh, his so name what was his name his lead. what was his name uh, he went by Chad Forrest and if you look on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album uh, he's given credit as the drummer and he is the drummer no matter whatever they did after that whoa uh, he's whoa, the original whoa. drummer on, on, on the whole album dude you're dropping so serious wow. pardon me I mean that's some serious not- how do you spell his last name Chet Forrest yeah with two R's I believe he used his real name was Philosoph and uh, then he you know because many of us did this back then, you didn't use our full last name or something or another. But like for me, for instance, it's uh, Zachowitz, but I go by Zach. <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. So, uh, so, so, yeah. so he was your half brother. And how early in your life do you remember him? I mean, for lack of a better, I mean, just like wood shedding in the house. What, like, was he playing like? Yeah. Was he playing clubs? Like, I, I'm curious about this. Uh, yeah. To me, that's be, the... Be, go ahead. Yeah, before he left for the... After he graduated from high school, he was he got married and right away after high school, and he went into the Air Force. But I remember, you know, he's about 11 years... Uh, he was about 11 years older than me, but he would bring his band into the kitchen 
in the house and uh, I was probably six years old, something like that. So that was my first contact with it. And then uh, it just went on from there. How would you describe, what was the instrumentation of his band at that time? Uh, well, it was acoustic bass, of course, drums, uh, saxophone, and probably an accordion player. Really? Yeah. Were they, because were they, they playing would, like... They would do casuals yeah. and stuff like that. And there was a show out of uh, uh, the East Coast, I think it came from, I think it was called the Ted Mac Amateur Hour. And uh, so somehow they got on that show and they they drove out there to do that show. So that's my first recollection of his success with music. And uh, he was very well respected in high school. As a matter of fact, when I transferred to the public school, Hamtramck High School, uh, you know, I got in the band right away, no matter whether I could play well or not. Uh, Dude, that's so great. That's like sports. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Would you say they were, I mean, okay, so outside of the top 40 or the the casuals of the bar mitzvahs, was he like a, I mean, there was a place in Detroit, uh, outside of Detroit called the, the Bluebird Inn, and I mean, Coltrane used to play there, and Yusef Latif, and obviously Elvin came out of Detroit. Was he, was he like a bebop jazz kind of guy, regardless of the gigs that he played? Well, he used to, uh, yeah, he played at the Rooster Tail in, in Detroit with oh. the big band. Wow. And they would do Motown reviews over there, and so Motown would bring in some of their players. But, uh, you know, Baker's Keyboard is the place that I read. I dude, I, we're going to talk about that, dude. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he uh, Chet would play after hours, and he would do big band, uh, jazz big band shows. And there was another... Uh, another place in Detroit, I think it was called the Latin Quarter, you know. So uh, besides doing like, let's call it more or less like legitimate shows at the Rooster Tail, they would bring in uh, various artists from, uh, you know, around the country and what have you. Uh, he would do these jazz uh, tape-offs here and there of big band things. And there was a, a guy by the name of Wilson uh, that led one of the big bands, but... So he was very active, but that happened after he came back out of the service because he went right, he went right in the Air Force right after high school. And his wife, I don't even know, she probably just turned 16. And then shortly after that, uh, they had children in uh, Puerto Rico. That was where he was first stationed. So he picked up a lot of Latin influence there, Afro-Cuban stuff which he brought back with him but wow. he was very confident he could read anything so his success in las vegas uh, and detroit was uh, his uh, intuitive skills that he had also uh so what year would do you remember him in the kitchen with the accordion with the band what years basically was that that would have probably been in you know the mid 50s the so, mid fifties. This is so heady, yeah. man. So okay, so um, you get in the high school band. Were you? It was. It was interesting talking to Dallas, and I'm not really surprised. But I mean, it wasn't like, you know, in my, at 45 years old, in my naive little mind, I'm like thinking that it was all this big melting pot, and you know, all right. you guys were going to the black clubs, and you know, and that the reality was there were. Were you were you aware or hip to? 
I mean, Dallas and Catfish went down to the corner, and, I mean, John Lee Hooker would play there uh, at this bar. I'm just wondering about your exposure outside of the radio to the visceral, like the, 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 the black music of Detroit, whether it was C.L. Franklin's church, where Aretha was, or Sanctified Churches, or the 20 Grand. Baker's keyboard obviously was a major bebop, post-bop thing, but how, how hip were you to the live black music of Detroit? Well, very much so, because I think that it was just, uh, I don't know, it just kind of happened naturally. And uh, I, at a young age, I could, you know, I was playing in uh, nightclubs. I think when I got into the, about the time I got into the 11th grade, uh, I started playing with uh, Dallas's older brother, Catfish Hodge. And uh, so I would go to, uh, after hours, there was a, a after hours a bebop place, and I don't remember the name of it, but I would go and, you know, it was mostly uh, an audience of uh black folks there but you know i never had any fear of any of those kind of things because i grew up with i had friends in high school and it was a mixed environment and we all got along and had a great time and i learned from them and uh, you know we became friends and it was just it was a different situation and now i remember what you're talking about david's blue room that was right at the end of the street where dallas and uh and uh catfish grew up you yeah, yeah exactly dude. but then the, the club that i'm forgetting now the were you playing at the uh that bowling alley with catfish yeah i think that was uh one of the first uh bar gigs we got like we east side playing, lanes like, or something uh, was called i forgot the name lane something lanes Oh, East Warren Lane. East Warren Lane, yeah. Yeah, Zoncaju and Warren. Uh, but uh, we before that, we started playing in, in teen clubs and college parties and stuff like that. So I'm, I want to read you this. This is just a, a very little brief excerpt from my interview with Dennis Coffey. But he said, I used to go to the Minor Key in Detroit. I was yeah. too young to go to the West End Inn. I'd hear older musicians in the record store talking about it, but I was only in high school. Now, he right. used to hang out with Wes Montgomery. I mean, he, 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 he talks about this place called the Drone Lounge in Detroit. Um, were, you, were, were you able to... Did you have the chops to... Play? I mean, Catfish wasn't playing jazz, per se. It's pretty raw. It's pretty blues based and very psychedelic and and heavy yeah. um which is also very much part of that detroit scene you know i just wonder about if you could talk maybe a little bit more uh, like on a global level the idea of when i think about joe morello um and i think about i mean blakey and elvin reinvented it but even max roach i mean so many of these cats like they were so tasteful on the drum kit. Oh yeah. And they were yeah, they, so they, they they you know what it is? I just want to get the question out, and then you can riff any way you want. He just it just was like you know, they treated it as an accompanist instrument. And over time, as the decades went on, drummers got louder and louder and louder to the point where like it sounded almost like especially specifically the bass drums. It just sa- started to sound like machine gun fire. And yeah. I wanted you to talk about like like the aspect of even if it wasn't in a jazz setting, can you just talk about how you learned 
to feather the bass drum in any musical context because to be honest with you that is a completely lost art in music well i still work you know i still work at all of that (laughs) the more we know the the more we think we know the less we know really i love it that's right that's the way the universe is it's always uh, that way man i was just exposed to all of this stuff very early on i used to go to a a blues club in detroit called the uh, chessmate and i would hear people come in and play at the chessmate all the time from folk artists to uh, uh rock and roll artists that uh, from new york that were doing things that they were like pre-psychedelic but a lot of uh, uh blues people came in to uh the chessmate and they would have after hours jazz there was a drummer that was uh, around detroit his name was steve booker and, uh, oh, I never heard outrageous. that. Oh my oh, Steve God! Booker was something else. Holy if you never cow, heard of Steve man! Booker, you got to inquire about him because I never. He used to play at this club, and he would just play by himself. He he, he had it. Um, oh my God, dude! Uh, this yeah, is he was unbelievable. Astounding, really. And you know, he would do outrageous things. Like one time, I remember being at the chessman and he lit his drums on. So he's like, <laughs> you know, Keith, Keith Moon, eat your heart out, right? Right. So. But, I mean, he was accomplished, and then he eventually, I understand, I think he moved to New York, but, uh, you know, he could play all these different things, all these different time signatures and so forth, but it was just being exposed to what my brother uh, had around him, and uh, I just learned by watching, and he would take me down to the rooster tail when they would do the Motown review thing, and uh, they would bring in Benny Benjamin to play drums and you know um whoa i asked my whoa. brother I, I said can i can i sit up on the stage where nobody can see me so you know he made arrangements for that and i was sitting right on the the back of the platform and uh you know i got to uh you know this is a big band setting very nice supper club i don't know if you've ever heard of the rooster Club. i know you're i love the name dude never heard of it Right on the Detroit River, it was owned by the Shana brothers, and they were into uh, wow. the speedboat racing thing. But um, <laughs> right, it was right, beautiful right. because they, they built this beautiful nightclub. And uh, oh. Buddy Rich played there. I mean, you, you name it. There wow. were all kinds of people that played at the, at the Rooster Tail. And then they built an upper deck for the rock and roll people and i played in the upper deck while my brother was playing downstairs dude that is so freaking cool i mean that is the i know hold on for a second you're telling i just want to be clear about so the review was when the review would come in like they bring the actual studio sharks from motown to play those gigs like betty benjamin and jamerson and those cats they would so like they would have the charts the horns and all that right. they would bring in their own rhythm section so Chet would sit out but uh, you know I got to hear it so <laughs> I cannot can you talk about just the feel that those guys I mean it, there were no drum machines there was no click I mean there was no playing to the click there was no playing straight beats it was like they were making up I'm not saying they were making up those grooves were stood the test of time but I mean, I just feel like my generation and younger, there's so much, the ability to perseverate and focus on very incidental things can really hang you up. Those guys didn't have time to do that. I mean, Coffee said they were expected to do one song an hour at Motown, three songs in three hours, you had to knock it out. 
And those yeah. reviews must have been swinging. I mean, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Oh, it was a lot of fun, yes. It was definitely, uh, for a young kid my age, it was uh, great to be exposed to that. And my other brother, my brother Rich, that was, uh, Rich and Chet had the same father, but my father raised them. Uh, they didn't really know their father. He left my our mother at a very early age. So we basically were in the same house Huh. under the same roof until uh, Chet left for the Air Force and then uh, me and Rich were still living uh, in the house with my mother and, and my father. But um, I did. Was a, yeah. So my brother Rich was very much into uh, R&B music and he was very much into the blues. So he would bring blues records home and I would listen to him and then uh, when he was playing them, then I would play them on my own, and I would play to the records, you know. I didn't have even have any drums or anything like that. I don't even know if I had a pair of sticks, but <laughs> I would get pencils or whatever and, and play to them, and I just, you know, I had a, a love for the the blues music right away and the, and the jazz, which was an offshoot of that. So, uh, you know, it's nice to be exposed to that. Both of my brothers were influential in, in that regard, and so... Yeah, and then when Chet came back from the Air Force, uh, he started working in some of the, the nightclubs in downtown Detroit, like the Brass Rail and, and places like that. And, and then eventually, uh, you know, his name got around and uh, he got hired to uh, work at the Rooster Tail. But and it was through the Rooster Tail and the musicians that were in the band, the big band. Sure. Uh, that's how he got exposed to Motown and he would start coming in to do sessions at Hitsville and what they would do is like if they wanted uh, drum fills over whatever Benny did or or somebody else did uh, there were there were three prominent drummers in Motown uh, Uriel uh, Jones and uh, Pistol that's right Pistol and like Benny Benjamin that's right yeah and so uh, you know so Chet would come in and he would just add color sometimes they would overdub drum fills and things oh like that God. and eventually he played on some tracks and the, the biggest one was of course with Marvin Gaye and uh, Dave Vandepit who was the bass player um, at the, uh, the Rooster Tail Orchestra he he was the one that did all the orchestration and arrangement for uh, the What's Going On record, the album Now, because he's dead I mean, your, your brother Chet is definitely not listed as was he didn't wasn't playing colors on that he was playing the drums the drums on that yeah yeah but he didn't get he didn't get uh, credit on the album for that yes he did he did yeah he gave uh, Marvin Gaye was the first time Motown actually gave uh, credit to any of the musicians unfortunately it took them quite a long it time it sure did you're right yeah you know uh so uh, you're right because you look at any of those like mid to late '60s Motown Gordy stuff. It's just the it's just Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, or you don't even know who the accompanists are. Right, right, right. So if you look at the original uh, final 33, yeah, uh, you'll you'll see all the musicians listed and and uh, my brothers in there. Oh my god! So that was a big deal. And at the time that that was going on, I was playing with one of the rock and roll bands in Detroit that was uh, doing very well. And the band that I was in, Savage Grace, was a combination of all the elements that we all love to play. I mean, we combined uh, 
not only the rock and roll and psychedelic aspect of it, but jazz and classical music. Wow. And, yeah, and man. The two guys, yeah, the two guys in the band that uh, were older than me uh, were very accomplished. That was Ron Koss on guitar and John Senor on piano. And both of these guys were like, you know, they were ahead of me, but <laughs> they pulled me along. And then I pulled along the young bass player, El Jacquet, because he came in as like the, uh, uh, if I could say the um, uh, Morrison from the Doors. Oh, he came in from that kind of angle, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the whole sex appeal kind of thing. Uh, yeah, no, he has that, I mean, he has that, there's a, mis I don't even know, when I saw that name, I said, who is this guy, man? You know, some sort of <laughs> yeah. mystique. So wait, just going back for a second, uh, Savage Grace, one of the greatest names for a band I've ever heard in my life. Um, how did you guys actually link up because the band the way it's the, and i haven't ever seen that lp or those lps you guys made i don't I, um but just the, the band that came into my mind when you were describing the sound of the music was that band the flock out of chicago did you know them at all uh i knew of the flock. yeah of the jerry goodman the, you know there were elements of like rock and and classical and jazz but how did you guys... Oh, right, right, yes. That's kind of the, the way that we drifted, but we had a lot of classical elements. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to me. So yeah. how did it all... Was there a definitive moment when you guys all met, or did it just sort of, just like we talked well, about... It kind, of, it kind of evolved because uh, we were working in uh, some really nice nightclubs, including the Rooster Tail, like I said, the Upper Deck was one of the places that we eventually played on a regular basis and then there were a few other places but uh it was a, a band that consisted of dennis kaverick and john cena ron Koss, and gary Pregg and myself and we were just we you know we were just covering a lot of uh popular music and mainly we were a bunch of Beatles freaks sure so, sure yeah you know so as the psychedelic music started to infiltrate everything we became more and more interested in that and um so to make a long story short at some point we played we decided to get out and test the waters and play <laughs> in a concert type situation you know and sure. i think we opened for dick wagner and the frost oh and my God. Uh, uh they were a really great band and they showed us how it was done and we were like a bar band out of place so uh, yeah, Dick Dick play. Wagner and the Frost. Yeah. So explain. I mean, you're talking about entertain. He taught you sort of the entertainment element of music, or what was it that stood out and and gave you guys some enlightenment, so to speak? Well, uh, after we really heard what was going on, we needed to make an, an entire shift in huh. the way that we were going to approach the music. So basically, like I said, to make a long story short, I came home and told my wife. We were married less than a year. I said, uh, I'm quitting the gig, and we're going to start rehearsing, and we're going to be doing this kind of stuff. And so we just had a, a formula that we decided that we needed to change if we wanted to get into playing what we saw as an undercurrent from everything that was happening on the West Coast with the Monterey Pop Festival. Sure. And uh, so we, we changed. We changed uh 
we got a bass player who could sing, which, which was El Jacques, and uh, and uh, but we had a real strong. Al was very smart, so he he did on the bass what what he he could do. But Ron and John were really accomplished. I mean, we did all of these instrumental sections and all of these pieces of music, and the albums were never really done uh, did us any justice. I was gonna. That was the one question. Okay, so I want to go be very clear. When you guys were just a bar band, so to speak, playing the upper deck at the Rooster Tail or wherever. You would say you had no formula, and then after you saw Dick Frost, you were like, we need to get a little bit, I don't want to say tighter, but to have a, you know, because Monterey Pop, when I think of the West Coast, I mean, one of my favorite bands, uh, and I never saw them, uh, you know, was the Grateful Dead, and they never, they're, people that listen to Studio Grateful Dead has no uh, reflection of their live performances, and I love that. And, you know, and to me, it's like, did you think, as a band, when you went to your wife, you had to make course correction because if you wanted to cut an album, you were going to have to become, I don't want to say a formula trip band, but you had to get a little bit tighter. Well, it wasn't a matter of getting tight because... It that was wasn't the right word. Of, yeah, that's the wrong word. Yeah, yeah. it, it was a matter of uh, changing the kind of music that we were doing. and We needed to do original music, and we needed to do our own interpretation of uh, covers of other uh, tunes huh. and how we were going to do that and allowing ourselves to have the room to uh, have instrument instrument uh, instrumental parts in the music which would allow for our freedom to be able to express ourselves. I mean, I was like, I was playing garage drums all over the place. You know what I mean? That's the kind of, you that's, think, the, that's the Larry think, Zach I want to hear, man. I love that stuff, but I get it, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, when you say garage drums, like, was it almost like, uh, um, I don't want to say punk, but you were just, like, it was not as refined, maybe, as as you wanted it to be? No, it was very refined, but it wasn't restricted to playing, oh, I do a drum fill here, or we're going to do this kind of thing. So we all put our um, ideas, you know, and rehearsed, like, five, six days a week out in off the 26 mile road off the friends at a friend's uh guest house you know in the in the stick somewhere where right. nobody was going to be disturbed and we did that and we did that until we finally worked it out for instance probably our our, our biggest uh uh tune i'll call it was all on watchtower so i'm looking at it right imagine. now yeah written by bob sung by al jacques Yes, yeah. but the whole thing was is during this time is when Hendrix came out with his version <laughs> all along the watchtower. But ours was completely different. Uh, I got to listen to that, man. I'd say the energy was the same, but the interpretation was really different. And we had the opportunity to open for Jimi Hendrix Experience twice uh, in the summer of 1970, I believe it was. In uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and St. Paul, Minnesota. I cannot believe that's you're blowing my mind right now. That's yeah. in, and it was just him and and his band and us, and it was just phenomenal. It was really great. I want to ask you about um, Savage Grace. I mean, clearly, you guys made a concerted effort to 
create solos and, and parts within songs and 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 had somebody approached you and said hey if guys if you do this uh, I'm just curious about how you wound up and I know it was very common at that time all these regional hotbeds and how did you wind up securing a record deal to me it's like a you got to sing for your supper and if you're yeah. I mean obviously you're rehearsing a lot but that means that there's you're taking less gigs so you got to believe that oh, down the no. we didn't work at all as a matter of fact Sharon's mom and dad, my wife's mother and father, they started bringing us groceries over. I love this, dude. Uh, I freaking house, love this. Uh, and we had, uh, Sharon got pregnant four months after we got married, so I mean, there was a baby involved and sure. all this kind of stuff, and I come home and say, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> and she had, to, she had to quit her job at the General Motors Tech Center, so she was making really good money. I was making really good money. And, uh, you know, relatively speaking for a nightclub band. and But we got along very well until this whole uh, awakening happened. And uh, was, well, you know, when you're young, you can take those kind of chances. So we did. And uh, it sort of evolved before we made all this change. It started to happen when we were working in the nightclubs and the rooster tail and so forth, you know, because... Ravi Shankar came along with the Beatles, so we had a, a piece of music called the Raga. Oh, you know, my and I played, God. I played a long drum solo in it, and, you know, Ron played an incredible uh, uh, tonal type of uh, solo in it because it was it's kind of like a, a modal kind of music, you know. And so, I mean, we started experimenting before we made any changes like that. And then, it, and then we, we branched out and we played a couple of these uh concerts you know we we did decide okay we're not we're going to take the night off in the nightclub we're going to go play this place and open up for so-and-so and uh, obviously we have some sort of context that got us the opening and that's where we learned okay well not only are we having to do these kind of musical changes but there's a whole sound factor involved in it so it was it was quite a process that happened if you look back on it rather quickly yeah it's quite an awakening because you yeah you were playing the upper deck of the rooster tail probably 68 right or 69 yeah 67 68 right so within a couple years you guys had 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 the awakening um can you talk about i mean it seems almost uh in today's world uh how did you have connections I, i assume through uh, the record label, maybe you got hooked up with Hendrix and cats like that. But how did you, how did you get to be able to open? Were they? How did you open for those cats? Well, the thing about it is, is there was a whole scene that developed in Detroit with this whole psychedelic movement. Right? Yeah, I, yeah, totally. The, Grand, the Grandy Ballroom, the East Town Ballroom. Uh, you know, so uh, that eventually started to really kick in. And we got involved in playing on those kind of gigs. But uh, because there was this whole support of the local musicians in Detroit, people were coming out to pop festivals, you know. And we started to get that kind of exposure along with Brownsville Station, uh, the Wilson Moore Pursuit, right. Dick, Frost, uh, Dick Wagner and the Frost. Oh, my and God. There were so, so, many, so many bands that, uh, you know, we're starting to really, you know, Iggy and the Stooges. And so everybody was getting their 
their notoriety, so to speak. And we were just having such a great time with the audience, and they were so receptive, and they were enjoying what we were doing. It was our take on what was happening on the West Coast. And, uh, and so it evolved from there. So all of a sudden, all of these you know, pop festivals started springing up because it became the big thing after Woodstock. And uh, so we started playing that. And then when you have these pop festivals, well, they have to bring in uh, names that were already hitting either on radio stations, on underground radio like WABX and stations outside of Michigan. So they would bring in, you know, the average white band or they would bring in, you know, you name it, you know, people, uh, Jethro Tull. Sure. They would start, you know, because they needed to have a, a two or three uh, big name acts. To bring cats in. Like, totally, totally. Yeah, so, uh, and so, and then they would add, you know, 25 bands from Detroit, <laughs> including uh, Bob Seeger and, the, you know, before the Silver Bullet Band and all that happened. And, uh, the, can you, know, you can so, you talk? I mean, this is so amazing. Where were these these pop festivals? Were in downtown Detroit? No, they were spread out all around. They were. Uh, I remember uh, what was the one? There were different parks that would allow it to happen, and uh, I don't remember the names of them now. And then it would it branched out to where they were having the festivals at places like. Jeez. Um, uh, it's okay. No, I mean, the point is that these things were happening quite a bit, and then there was this yeah. an incredible amount of live support. from Exposure. Pa- yeah. a, lot, a lot of patrons coming out to support, I mean, the live local musicians from Detroit. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, that's the way word got around, and then, you know, you start to make... You start to make headway that way, and uh, so it, it starts getting to the local reps for uh, the record companies, and they come out to see the bands play and uh, see what the hell's going on in Detroit. <laughs> you know, so the next thing that happens is, is after we played, and like a lot of the other bands played, you know, they say, hey, these guys are pretty good, you know, maybe we ought to book them on the next festival. We had an, uh, our first liaison to all of this stuff was a wonderful person and disc jockey Jerry Lubin and wow. Jerry Lubin was uh, uh, part of the the whole uh, underground radio WABX wow so do you are you familiar no, I, with I, dude please this, well, I mean I, I mean please break this down you, that was that was sort of underground radio in Detroit proper. Or? That's what they called. That was under. That was one of the underground stations, like they had in various other regions. Uh, you know, New York, Chicago, and you know the West Coast. So they had underground radio. Sure. And underground radio was playing what you, uh, all the things that you didn't that you wanted to hear <laughs> because the pop stations were playing all the, you know, the middle of the road things. Sure, there was some good things being played on the pop station is like what's going on for instance and you know tunes that were breaking through that were part of this kind of uh, psychedelic movement but it was underground radio that was exposing the uh, uh, the local areas so that people heard things that were happening in their neighborhood basically absolutely and I remember, I remember uh... was one of them along with all these other bands in Detroit 
So Jerry exposed us. We handed him a four-track tape from Ampex recorder that we did in the piano player's living room. And this is before we even changed personnel in the band and fully made a change, but it was part of the evolution. So we took a tune called Shapes of Things, which was... Who did Shapes of Things? It was one of the European bands that had a hit on it. And uh, so we did it our own way and with our own take on it. And then we did a uh, uh, we did a gospel tune that was done by uh, a jazz group called the Three Sounds, and it was oh my Hymn Gene Harris, man, come on, That's yeah, sick. Hymn to Freedom. They recorded Hymn to Freedom. Whoa. Now, Hymn to Freedom was uh, what do you call one of these uh, traditional songs? Yeah, uh, it, it was a hymn, really, right. And it was called Hymn to Freedom. And uh, John Senor knew of that particular tune because he listened to these records. And so he brought it, and we did our version of Hymn to Freedom. So we handed these two songs to Jerry uh, at WABX. And when he listened to it, you know, he, he his mind was blown. So in his mind, he was blown by this interpretation of these two songs. So he started playing it on the radio. And then that's how it kind of got started with getting that kind of exposure. Well, I just want to be clear, though, that I, this is so in, in light. Well, first of all, when I interviewed Charlie Musselwhite, he was living yeah. in Chicago and playing music and cutting records and, and really just working at a factory. And it turns out all this underground radio in the Bay Area was playing his stuff. So when he moved there out go. there, he already had a fan base. I mean, this stuff is like, you can't make this stuff up. It's no, no. Uh, What was the, the... How far was the reach of the of that particular uh, pirate station? I mean, were you able to get it all over Detroit? Well, basically, yeah. I don't know uh, what the strength of their signal was, but it certainly was powerful enough to, you know, reach out. I, I don't know exactly how far in Michigan, but it could have gone all over Michigan, as far as I know. Um, so it's fair so, to say uh, that you were getting, I mean, he was a big advocate, and do you remember the, the driving down the road and, and, or in your house and hearing one of those t- tracks that came on, Shapes to Come? Oh, or? absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was elating to oh my God. hear yourself on the radio um, and think, wow, this is really great. We're hearing something other than, uh, oh my God. you know, the mamas and the papas. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're great, but, you know, this is what we were doing. This is what Detroit was doing on the side. Aside from Motown, this is what else was going what was going on. So, um, I'm curious was, about. Uh, I just did, before I, I forget, did you know? Did you know Mutsy at all? His dad. Uh, he so he was one of these guys, totally in the the psychedelic rock vein of Detroit. His it, his dad owned a bar downtown Detroit called Anderson's Gardens. Very dubious place. A lot of hookers. But he, he cut an album with Mike Theodore and Dennis Coffey. That's the only reason I brought it up. Um, I'm curious, so did this DJ, through radio play, wound up getting you a record deal? Oh, this is fascinating. Actually, actually, he was very much responsible to it. And then he had to back up because it was uh, deemed, uh, you know, um, yeah. what do they call it? Unethical? Uh, yeah, unethical, but there's a term, term for it. Uh, 
I can't remember what it is right now. I can't remember a lot of things. That's all right, dude. We're all going to get there, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, there's a legal term for it. And so eventually he backed out, but he was a great supporter. He actually came up with the name for the band. And, you know, he was a part of the underground radio. There was Dan Carlisle and uh, Dave Dixon. You know, these, these guys were DJs that Dan Carlisle came out to the West Coast. He worked on KLOS for a long oh, time. He yeah. worked up in San Francisco. Uh, uh, Jerry came out here for a while also, but then he ended up moving back to Michigan and uh, with his family. Uh, you know, and I knew Dennis Coffey and uh, Mike Theodore and those people, but they were old older than myself they were older because when i interviewed dallas he was like he was like larry zach's older than me so he was like i i he he was talking about so coffee and theodore were a little bit older than you yeah um i just want to be so but because it looks to me like that the these albums were recorded in los angeles is that right yeah, we started in Detroit at Artie Fields uh, Productions, and Artie Fields was basically, uh, he used to record a lot of legitimate uh, jingles for TV and and, uh, and radio, and my brother Chet was involved in uh, doing recordings for him, and then eventually I got involved doing recordings over there too. Oh, that's so young great. kid trying to, you know. You know, yeah, you're doing suds and duds commercials. It's great. You're making some dough. Yeah, yeah. It was great because it was all legitimate. We got paid through the union. We got residuals, and that kind of environment doesn't exist anymore. Not Wait, hold on. You got resi- You got residuals from every yeah. time the every time the commercial would play. Well, what you you get paid for like 13 weeks or whatever the, the contract was. You know, say you record, uh, recorded something for the Detroit Free Press or right. whatever. Right. And then uh, if if they decided to use the commercial beyond that point, then they would have to pay through the union for a reuse on that. And so we would get paid again. Wow. You know, just like, just like, you know, the actors have, I'm sure, agreements on TV with uh, reruns of Seinfeld. Oh, absolutely. Friends, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What have you. Yeah. You know, years ago, they didn't have so much of that. It depends on, on what the scenario was. But uh, anyway, so Artie Fields was the first place we tried to record. It didn't quite work out because it was an attempt on Artie Fields Productions to try to, to do this. They, they the Warner Brothers brought in their own engineer and our producer from uh, Warner Brothers also and it didn't quite work out, so we had to transfer everything back to Los Angeles, and then we had to leave Michigan for a month or so, uh, the four of us, plus our, our road crew that we had to help us with various things in the studio. And uh, Well, let's just go back so for we, a second. I mean, how did, how did War- eventually, how did Warner Brothers corral you guys? Well, there was three records companies that came out to see us at least and it was atlantic records and wow. vanguard records and warner brothers that's so freaking and classic we, vanguard would have been sick by the way anyway go ahead yeah yeah we did record something for vanguard before we uh made a, a entire switch in the personnel in the band and 
you know, it was part of the evolution. Oh, before the enlight before the Enlightenment period, you actually cut something for Vanguard. Yeah, we we cut two forty fives for them. Are they was, are those did those made it to to the to the public? I got to get my hands on that. I mean, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much airplay they got. They were not really great tunes. They were an attempt by us to do something different. But oh my god, um, um, I'm trying to think of. So, well, no. So, 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 you're approached by three major record labels, and Warner's like offered you a two record deal. Why'd you go with them? Um, I guess it was a better deal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm well put. Ertig- That's right. I hope. Yeah, Ahmed Erdogan yeah. came out, yep. and uh, wow. we actually sat in the living room with him when we decided that Warner Brothers was the way to go, um, and. Um, do you recall the? Uh, he just passed away recently. The uh, the owner or the CEO? Yes, of, dude, uh, Clarence Avant. What's his name? Was it was it Clarence Avant from Sussex, or, or that was a local cat? No, no, no. It was uh, another name, well known name. He was in charge of Atlantic Records, so he came out to see us. And we, the guy from. Yeah. Uh, Vanguard, he came out to see a band again, but we decided to, uh, you know. Uh, was it was it Joel Joel Dorn came out to see you from Atlantic or no? No, no. I'm trying to think who that no, was. If, who, if I could think of the name. He was, in, I think he was Middle Eastern. His name was. Uh, uh, it was a Middle Eastern. Yeah, 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 yeah. Avakian, George Avakian, maybe. No, you know what? Also, I'm curious. You may not remember this, but for Vanguard. That cat's name was Maynard Solomon. Anyway, that Solomon. yeah, that, for Vanguard. I'm just. I mean, it's amazing. I guess maybe the the best question is. They felt that you guys had potential to make radio friendly hits. I guess so. It was shortly after they recorded Janis Joplin there, right, at the studio in New York, and uh, it wasn't Bob Shepard. It was. Um, the owner was, he flew us out in his airplane, believe it or not. Oh he came to Detroit, flew into Detroit, uh, not Metro, but the Detroit local airport, and uh, flew us into New York, put us up, and we recorded at the studio. And the only other artist that he had had in there was when Janis Joplin uh, recorded her hit there. Holy cow. So we were the next in line, but of course we didn't have a hit record. So, but the band changed quite drastically as far as its musical content and, and where we were going. So anyway, that was, um, you know, that's where it all started with that. But it was, uh, it was a great experience. Uh, East Town Ballroom, uh, Grandy Ballroom was phenomenal with the MC. MC5 was the home. Oh, sure. My at, God. Uh, Grandy Ballroom. And, uh, so like Jerry Lubin, he had a relationship with, uh, who was the underground leader uh, in Detroit at the time? Do you recall any? Dude, you're, you're, you know? you're hanging me out the dr- No, dude, this is before me. I don't know. I wish I knew. Yeah, okay. So, uh, all familiar names, but I, I, I'm having, you know, John Senor, uh, he's not much on doing any kind of interviews, but he, he has a good memory, and he would remember... Um, well, if he's up, yeah, no, I, that's fancy. It would be great to fill in the blanks. But the the thing is, uh, um, 
I actually wanted when you got to L.A. It's fascinating. It says that your I interviewed Bruce Botnick, but your his brother engineered this this session. Is that right? Uh, Bruce, Bruce Botnick's brother. I I think so. I would have to look at the credits. You know. Uh, yeah, I'm looking here at Douglas Botnick. I mean, what was that vibe like? Did you were there? Did you all hit at the? I'm talking about the one with. Uh, it's uh, well, I'm looking at Savage Grace two actually. All, mm-hmm. all on the Watchtower, Hymn to Freedom. Actually, yeah. it looks like Hymn to Freedom was written by Oscar Peterson. Okay, and there you go. By the way, Oscar Peterson uh, used to play quite a bit at the Chess Mate. When I interviewed Gordon Lightfoot, he talked about seeing Ray Brown and Ed Thickpen down there. Um, oh, you interviewed Gordon Lightfoot? I sure did, yeah. So Gordon Lightfoot's uh, producer was Joe Wisser from Warner Bros. Yeah, sure. And Joe Wizard was our producer. Oh my on God! First, on the first so record, classic. on the second record, it, it was John Haney, and uh, John Haney was also the engineer. Yeah, I'm looking. He Joe Wizard brought Bruce, Bruce Botnick in on that. Well, you know, it was, it, actually, this, if they're saying or, it was it was his brother Doug Botnick. The other, Doug Botnick. And the other yeah, thing is that has it's so classic because Bernie Krause, who I also interviewed, played Sint, Moog Synth apparently on this. This is the second one. What was the L.A. experience? Did you guys, was there a lot of overdubbing, or did you all hit at the same time? No, it was uh, it was done live, and if any overdubbing had to be done, it was only because, uh, you know, either something was unsatisfactory or, or it could be, because um, there would have been, you know, a lot of these uh, tunes, as, as far as the instrumental parts go, you know, had to be done uh, all together. Explain why. I'm, this, I, th- my, favorite, my favorite process of recording is what you're describing. But why did it have to be that way? Well, very much different than today. It wasn't I know. Because it was necessary that, uh, that we all were able to respond to one another in the moment. Huh. Irregardless of the fact that, uh, you know, by this time we already knew the structure of the tunes but when it came to the instrumental sections I mean it, the excitement and the energy that needed to be put into it couldn't be something where okay well I know that after eight bars I go I go into this section and then eight bars I go into that section you could do it that way but that was not the way we had developed these songs so we needed to record it as a live recording and if anything needed to be fixed, then if there was enough separation, uh, you know, Ron could maybe fix something on the guitar or something on the keyboard, but it basically had to be done live. And only and only if something was uh, fixable that wasn't agreeable to everybody and say, oh, well, that, that doesn't sound good, but everything else is great. Can we, can we fix that? You know, that would be the, basically the vibe on that because it was so... Uh, necessary, like in a jazz kind of format, where you want to be able to. Oh, I love it! I freaking off. love it, man! Yeah. No, today, today they don't want that excitement and that energy. They want it to be sterilized and sanitized. No, yeah, and a lot of the fusion players, you know, name name guys like Weko and Vinnie Caliuta. I'm just naming drummers, but it happens through all of the instrumentation. You know, they can uh, send a file to 
exactly. person, and they can go in the studio and record their parts, and it back and say, is this acceptable, does it work for you, and if they say blah, 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 well, then they can alter it, but it's not that same kind of response. Yeah, it's called, it's called like, pulse and heartbeat and tension and release, and, like, I mean, even exactly. if you played that, you play those tunes thousands of times, and yet it's still, you get giddy in in the studio. I mean, did you say that, would you say that most of the tracks on, on those records were first or second takes? Absolutely. Unbelievable. Yeah, but the, the main part that took the longest was like getting drum sounds and stuff like that. And you can't spend that much time in the studio today anymore. So like, I know you see that's the all the cost prohibitive nature of it all. Yeah. Yeah, the the cost is uh, too great anymore. So like those were in the heydays of where there was a budget, and you had, uh, you know, it was almost open ended really, uh, and you just can't do that today anymore. So my wife would say. What the hell? It's three days. You're still getting a drum sound? <laughs> <laughs> but when it came time to recording, you know, you, you got down to business and we knew what to do. Um, we were well rehearsed and we had played so much already live that um, we were ready to do it. Uh, do it. You know, we just, you know, Joe was, was a great producer. I just don't know if he was, I don't think he was the right producer for this kind of band. So huh. there were certain things that were out of our control that could have been handled uh, a little bit differently or maybe a lot differently. But, uh, you know, it, it was what it was. And uh, it was it was that era, it was that time. So uh, we probably left Detroit too early because our managers were out here in California. The record company was out here in California. And they said, oh, you guys should be out here. But uh, we probably packed up and left too soon. So... What, did you did you have an opportunity to I mean, even especially on the first album? Did you have an opportunity to uh, do a domestic tour for to, to promote the record? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, there were uh, at, after that, then we had something to promote, so we started opening like for single acts, like for uh, Proco Harem. Sure. Uh, Jethro Tull. Yeah, I love it. Uh, you know, uh, the East Town Ballroom and uh, the Grandy started bringing in big acts so we could open for them. You know, uh, open for Janela Fudge or open for... Um, uh, like Grand like Funk or something, maybe? Uh, no, Grand Funk actually came very much on the tail end of this whole... Detroit. That is fascinating. Uh, That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And Bob Seeger really didn't have his heyday till long after we left. Long, fact, long I, after. Long after. You know, he found he found a Dukatra, you know, in his songwriting and uh, it very much mirrored some kind some of the music that I started to become associated with here in California. Huh. And it, and it and I think he really fell into his zone. And he did a beautiful job um, writing some incredible music. So it was more, uh, but you were at the forefront, the MC Five, Catfish. Those, yeah, along yeah. with the MC Five and people like that. But uh, you know, when people think of Detroit, they pretty much think of MC Five and Iggy and the Stooges. I love. And they rarely mention uh, Savage Grace and some of the other bands that did very well. 
in Detroit. Was was, was, yeah. was I just want to be was Baby Huey from Detroit or was he in Chicago? Uh, I don't know that. You don't know that. Okay, Dallas brought him up, but I think he was a Chicago cat. So the, on it came your second record came out on Reprise. Uh, did they? Did did you guys actually? Did any of your tunes get? Uh, did find their way? Did did any of your tunes get radio play once you actually cut them on? And on yeah, the, one of the songs uh, I think actually from I think we did it on the first record uh, got radio play on the pop station in Detroit. It was uh, "Come On Down with Me." Come on down yeah. with me. Yeah, and it was written after we played the second Atlanta Pop Festival. It wasn't the big first one. It wasn't the Isle of Wight. Yeah. But it was still, it was a very big festival. And we went down there, and uh, you might recall a band called Rare Earth. Of course, dude. Yeah, so I ended up playing with Rare Earth eventually for about a year. Whoa. But this was after they had, uh, you know, Pete the drummer and Mike Herschel, the bass player, uh, had a falling out. And the other three guys in the band got a ownership of the name so they had to find a new drummer and they had to, I mean this is you know more history that you know would take too long no no well, this is uh, it's so perfect you bring this up because we yeah. uh, we can we do part two next week I would we still have a lot more to get to but we just cooked for an hour here that yeah that, that would be good for me because uh yeah I I, I would enjoy doing that let's that do let, let's why don't we just plan for the same time next Tuesday does that sound good uh I'll tell you what, Jake. Yeah, um, I'll text. Why don't Why don't I? Te I'll text you, and then we'll just communicate through that. We'll figure probably it. Probably would have to be the week after that. All right, so let it. Let's let it breathe. We'll give it two weeks. Two weeks from today, three three p.m. Okay, Jake. Nice talking. Hey, man. Good to hear you, Larry. Thank you. Much love. You Peace. Have a good day, man. All right, you too, man.